0: This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez.
1: I'm Fabian Nebuyla. And I'm Ben Brophy.
0: Today we're going to do another easy one. We're going to do reparations. <laughs> um, I'm just going to start us off with kind of a, Again, I always go back to Wikipedia, but they usually have good definitions. So what is what are reparations? This is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk specifically about reparations for slavery. There are other forms of reparations we could talk about um, for other sort of injustices. We think about Native Americans in particular. Um, Again, hope to explore those in the future today, we're going to talk about reparations for slavery. So the definition here, reparations for slavery is the idea that some form of compensatory payment needs to be made to the descendants of Africans tracked to and enslaved in the Americas as a consequence of the Atlantic slave trade. Um, These reparations are speculative, that is, they've never been paid. Um, And um, so that's actually why they are uh, an issue now. People are asking the question should they be paid
2: Man, I, frankly I think it's a good question uh, <laughs> it's a good question um, and and it's a major part of the history of the country that we need to have some accounting for mm. and reckoning with
0: yeah yeah so let's let's go ahead and talk a little bit about um, that history and I'll try to be brief mm. um, but it'll give us kind of a somebody to start with Ben to be, they just kind of jump in as I as I go through this um, so You know, the idea of reparations flows from the idea that there was some injustice done. Um, That injustice began with slavery, but it didn't end there. So you start with slavery. You start with the fact that millions of Africans were taken from their homes in Africa, brought across the Atlantic to British North America, but also the rest of the Americas, um, and were in bondage, and that their children and descendants were in bondage, and that this continued for hundreds of years. Um, And, of course, as we've discussed earlier on the podcast, um, slavery in the U.S. ends over 200 years later in 1865 with the passage of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution in the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, But then you have more after that. For 100 years after that, as we've also discussed, um, you have segregation. You have Jim Crow laws. You have a denial of the vote. That isn't slavery. What it is, though, is an exclusion from participation in political governance, um, which almost guarantees, right, that public policies um, will not favor your people and will actively disfavor your people. And, in fact, that was the reason um, that um, those who sponsored segregation and Jim Crow set the system up that way. Um, And, um, actually, it continues all the way up through that time, really, in some senses, to the present day. So... You have a range of public policies, local, state, and national, and common practices uh, that discriminate against black Americans. So in the 20th century, um, just separate from Jim Crow, right? you have um, housing discrimination. You have the prevention of African-American households from accumulating uh, wealth through building equity in a home. Um, one central focus of this, this is kind of one example, but there are many, um, Mid 20th century is kind of remembered as a golden age for sort of the building of America's middle class. One of the sort of strongest uh, kind of pieces of public policy that that's attributed to is something called the GI Bill. It was a bill for returning World War II veterans, um, helping them to readjust to civilian life. The benefits it provided included low cost mortgages, low interest loans for things like education, other financial support. When you look at the stats, and African Americans just simply did not benefit nearly as much as white Americans, mostly because of this confluence of local and state and customary practices. Um, so, you know, not even you don't even need to go to the South. In New York and northern New Jersey suburbs, 67,000 mortgages were insured by the GI Bill. Fewer than 100 were taken out by non-whites. Um, the only way you get there, actually, is it's not just public policy. It's individual banks, mortgage agencies, refusing loans to black people. Um and um, just a whole other thing, number of things like that, and then through to sort of the the modern era, you know, kind of what's been in the news in the last five to ten years has been police brutality, um, the really the the abuse of local authority um, at the expense of African Americans. If you remember how Ferguson was one of the kind of touchstones of that, there was the issue of brutality, but actually there was another story in the DOJ report that came out in Ferguson, which is simply that sort of The police department was a revenue-generating agency, the police department and the courts, right, Mm -hmm. and were instructed something like a quarter of the city's budget by 2015 came from fines for minor violations where police were just kind of out there stopping people, ticketing them, imposing sort of taxation by another means on a majority black population. So that's in 2015. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of a very, very (laughs) compressed history yet T look like No,
2: it's a good history. I I think the thing I'd want to drive home as you recount that history um, is something I think many people, I'm not sure, fully appreciate these days, and that is just how widespread, how pervasive and systemic, uh, how cultural and Mm -hmm. personal um, is this system of disenfranchisement, oppression, marginalization and so on Uh, and the thing that as we come to the question of reparations I think one of the things to sort of understand as you recount the history is the state is a actor Mm -hmm. this is enshrined in law this is enforced with the power of law Um, this is not just individuals who are uncouth and and sort of morally backward doing individual things Um, these things are legal It's the law of the land uh, the ability to hold slaves, the disenfranchisement of Jim Crow, um, and so on. Uh, and so when businesses act and individuals act, they're actually acting inside um, the, the permitted uh, behaviors uh, of, of the law. And, and this is why when we come to reparations, I think the, the appropriate place to locate the conversation um, is the state, mm-hmm. not the individual.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, T and I think in the case of bad behavior state and locally, right, it's also a failure to restrain that bad behavior, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. so if you think about we talked about the Voting Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act essentially was the mother of all restraints on state and local bad behavior as regarded voting rights, Mm -hmm. and a failure to implement legislation like that um, that allows these sorts of practices to continue is also the responsibility of the state, I think,
2: So what's the consequence of all this? You're talking about the history now, because some people are thinking, well, this is ancient history. Does mm-hmm. that have anything to do with us? So, what's the consequence of this history, as reflected in yeah. life today?
0: I think we cited this stat a few um, last season. We talked about how the kind of the median net worth of the African American household in the states is zero, mm-hmm. which means that there are some with a positive net worth, but several with a negative, mm-hmm. um, and Uh, you know, there's something like almost a million-dollar gap between African Americans and their white counterparts on that score. Mm -hmm. You can, I mean, wealth is an intergenerational thing, Mm -hmm. and you can sort of see it in stats like that, but there's lots of other stats, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Stats on life expectancy, health, um, income day-to-day, educational attainment. In my field in, you know, public education, uh, multiple kind of measures, what we refer to as the achievement gap. Um, it shows up everywhere. And I think, actually, there's this something quite interesting. Like, if you think that the causality of that has little or nothing to do with history, then really, scientific racism is your only refuge.
2: That's right. Right? Like, to say, that's oh, right. well,
0: it's inherent to who these people are. That's right. Right? And so I think that's why, for some of us, you look at these stats and you just, you're overwhelmed or the idea that history's hand is at work mm-hmm. in looking at
1: these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that reminds me of something I saw online a couple of weeks ago, where um, in certain corners of evangelicalism, you'll hear, well, personal responsibility, wh- African Americans continue to do X, Y, and Z. This rate is higher. This rate, this, cr- this thing is higher. This thing is higher. And if you strip away all the context, historical and otherwise, you're basically saying that African-Americans are more sinful than any other groups. And it's like, there is no biblical basis for that. Mm. Like, all have fallen short. So uh, I think, yeah, I I think if you're saying this sin is some, uh, a particular people is somehow specially sinful, like you're out of step with scripture and and should really repent um, of holding that belief. There is no biblical basis for saying one group is going to be in any way more sinful than another and the various social Um, injustices you see in the african-american community are a result of a great many things historical and structural and otherwise um so that that just resonated with me quite a bit it was well said i forget who said it but it was one sentence and i was like yeah that's exactly right
0: so i think that groundwork kind of tells us okay a, a massive injustice was done intergenerational over hundreds of years and so the question reparations poses is what should be done about that injustice um so what form would reparations take um and i'll just i'll kind of give you a short list of sort of the types of things people talk about right um and so sort of one obvious one is just cash payments you can compensate the descendants of the victims um, in some way shape or form but but people often think that's the only thing there are actually several kind of different things that proponents of reparations have talked about um second would be access to education access to employment so affirmative so-called affirmative action programs we've discussed those in a prior episode um another um one that shows up on the list is symbolic measures um public apologies by governments commemorations memorials um it's a big deal actually when a government publicly apologizes for having done something wrong in the past it doesn't happen that often um you know, uh, talk about things like, we read the names of our war dead. Do we read the names of those who were stolen from the ancestral homelands, for example? Do we remember? And do we sort of work toward closure? Like, that is um, also a dimension of this beyond the monetary one. Um, and then, of course, you could think about direct service, right? Governments kind of having programs that provide services to the descendants of victims as well. Um and at a minimum, kind of wrapping around all this is the idea of just even endorsing having the conversation. So the sort of vehicle for that that is kind of out there in the in the in the news these days because of the Democratic primary is a bill called HR 40, um, and every, you know a bunch of Democratic candidates are sort of endorsing it, and it's a bill to create a commission that would study the issue and make recommendations. Um, now. Uh, If you came to the news now, you'd think it was something new. It's actually been introduced every single year for, I think, over 30 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, But First by Representative John Conyers of Michigan and now recently uh, taken up since he retired by uh, Sheila Jackson Lee. Um, So it's been a thing, right? Um, And it's gaining sort of traction in the current conversation. But there's a lot more sort of conversation to have.
2: Mm. Well, so that's kind of the history and in some ways, kind of presumes the position of those who are in favor. Mm-hmm. What, what's the argument against? What, who are the? What are folks saying that are uh, opposed to reparations?
1: Um, so, Nick, Nick prepared this. I think uh, I'll I'll play the, the guy who reads this stuff. Um, one Kevin Williamson Williamson, a writer from National Review, has a quote that says, um, "The people to whom reparations are owed are long dead. Our duty is to the living." and to generations yet to come, and their interests are best served by liberty and prosperity, not by moral theory. So this is essentially the idea that the perpetrators and victims are both dead. Um, Mitch McConnell kind of echoed this. Uh, He said he didn't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. Um, There are some fringier arguments. Um, Dinesh D'Souza has said African Americans are vastly better off than they would have been had their ancestors not endured captivity and European rule.
0: And I'll just, I'll, one, one note on that is that it's fringier, and in the current era is getting less fringy, right? You, you, I mean, you can hear, you can turn on Fox News, and just occasionally hear kind of the old saw about how slaves were actually treated pretty well, right? It, it kind of pops up here and there.
2: Well, and to be clear, and it's always had its Christian version as well. Right? Mm-hmm. So this is part of the pro-slavery argument among Christians, the, the civilizing influence of, of slavery, right. um, the, the sort of um, uh, generous interest that Christian slaveholders were supposedly taken in the conversion uh, of slaves and so on uh, out of dark mm-hmm. Africa. So this, that's, it, I think that was mainstream, then fringy, and becoming a bit more mainstream.
1: Yeah. Some other arguments... Uh, that we've seen out there. Um, David Frum laid out some, some good faith arguments about uh, the impossibility of reparations. One is a slippery slope for other groups. Who else should be compensated? And uh, we mentioned Native Americans. They would be a, a, a clear candidate. Um, what other disenfranchised, ab- abused, oppressed groups do we think should be financially compensated? How do we decide who qualifies for reparations? Um, would it be a difficult process? Would people fight? Would it get ugly? Um, could have bad side effects, perhaps on personal responsibility. Um, government spending is subject to capture and corruption. A reparations industry might be an invitation for that. Um, and so, uh, another would be a reparations program would quickly lose legitimacy for simply too many r- logistical problems would arise in, how in deciding how to implement the distribution of money. So, there is some fair questions about how we would implement, though I don't know that these address the principle um, of reparations as a whole
0: well and i think if i were to put a i mean again because i'm i i'm actually i'm a pretty good big fan of david frums you know like n- nice canadian american conservative um ben you're rolling your eyes so apparently you are not oh okay oh, he's he putting conservative in air quotes okay <laughs> <laughs> that's what this is he's
2: um, a canadian conservative that's right I know, He's that's really different. nice <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right
0: um what I would say here, yeah, because conservatives have to be mean, right? is right. that um, so um, but I, I guess I guess the thing you must grapple with seriously is this question of how, like you have to have a good answer to that question or at least a the, a good progressively better answer to that question. Um, and also, I think uh, so again, the sort of most positive spin I'd think about this is,, um, how do you? think about justice when when people are in fact did, did in fact lot die long ago mm-hmm. right and what do you do for the person who says yeah my uh, you know or yeah, the white person who says you know my ancestors did this and should i be held accountable for what they did on the one hand uh, or or actually my ancestors didn't do this right i'm i'm a i'm a white american whose ancestors immigrated 50 years ago what 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 what, what, how, what does this have to do with me right so you, you need an, i'm not you know you need an answer to that set of questions if you're gonna kind of move forward on the question of reparations, I think.
2: Yeah. Well, I, in some ways, the, the how question, though, is obscuring uh, and preventing, in some cases, even any discussion on the should question. Right? Yes. So the, so the rush to the how is often short-circuiting mm. uh, what we've been taking for granted in this conversation, that an injustice was committed mm. um, and that it should be corrected, right? Yeah. Uh, I, when you get solid answers on those, mm-hmm. was there an injustice? Um, should we correct it? Well, then you actually have a different mental approach to the how question, mm-hmm. right? Rather than raising the how question as um, a way of sort of stacking up all the insurmountable, ob- insurmountable ob- obstacles, you become a little bit more like Kennedy saying, we're going to put a man on the moon. We're, mm-hmm. we're going we're to figure this out if, if you've answered the should questions uh, decisively yeah.
0: You know? yeah. well it's like you it's like we like to say at Anacostia River Church right uh, we want to be willing to have the conversation
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and just saying like even if it's messy yeah. Um, so yeah let, 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 let's have it yeah. then
1: yeah. Um, well yeah. the yeah. one thing I would add is uh, no matter l- let's say we get the moral will to pass reparations whatever is implemented is going to be imperfect mm-hmm. yeah. there is no perfect justice that can be restored That's to the sweet. people who are enslaved Um, So whatever we do, whether it's from an apology to massive financial restitution, it is not going to make anyone whole. You know, it's not a it's not an end all be all silver bullet.
0: Mm. And, and, And in a way. The idea of the ideal of making the victims whole becomes a convenient excuse in its impossibility for not doing anything. Yeah. Right. Like that. That's that's actually the kind of the issue. So. Let's go to the Bible on this one. Um, T, how should we think about what the Bible says about reparations as an issue, as a justice issue? Um, Yeah, we'd just love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah, well, maybe to just sort of start with, again, bullet pointing the objections as I've understood them, uh, particularly from Christians who've been talking about this a little bit. Uh, the, The first objection is... Uh, generally what what folks are saying is reparations is an injustice itself uh and they're saying that precisely for the reasons we've been talking about here number one there are no living slaves and no living uh owners of slaves now that turns out not to be true in terms of living slaves there's you know some interesting little age things there but Mm Uh, but, but let's take that argument. There are no living slaves, no living owners of slaves. Therefore, there's no debt between, you know, current African Americans and the country as a whole. Uh, number two, they, they would say it's an injustice to take uh, an individual's hard-earned monies, right, and to transfer that to people uh, to whom it doesn't belong. Um, so the issue of being taxed in order to support uh, reparations in this generation um, strikes many people as as an injustice. So I think what what we would want to do is move beyond just the general principle that we all kind of agree to. So so every Christian I think reading their Bible mm. would understand something of the notion of restitution uh, being taught very clearly in the Scripture. You see that in the Mosaic Law. You see it in Numbers chapter five verse seven, for example, uh, where the Word of God says and um, referring to someone who has committed a sin, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. Um, and so what you get there is a pretty clear situation where the two parties in dispute are alive. Um, there's a wrong being committed. Uh, restitution needs to be uh, made, and then some. Well, I think the question then goes, okay, does the Bible permit restitution... In anything that looks like uh, the payment uh, to a person who wasn't harmed, wasn't the one directly harmed. Um, and there, I think, again, in the law, you, you see laws, for example, in, in the killing of a child, right? There's a pregnant woman. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two men who are arguing. Um, they, hit, they strike the pregnant woman. The baby dies. Well, it's the baby who died, but it is the, the parent who is compensated. Mm-hmm. Uh, restitution is made even though the direct victim is, is not the one uh, receiving the restitution there. So I think at least in principle, even in the law, you, you get a notion there of making restitution, even where um, the immediate victim isn't present. But I think the answers to the objections get stronger than that, uh, particularly when we think of what's happening in Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra chapter one, verse one, uh, we're told that Cyrus um, has issued a decree uh, to send Israel out of its 70-year captivity in Babylon uh, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now, as it turns out, uh, this was God's doing. God had prophesied that 70 years before in Jeremiah 25, 12, and 13. And Jeremiah, interesting, Jeremiah uh, 29, 10 to 12. Now, people love to quote verse 11. Uh, I know the plans I have for you, so on and so forth. It's smack in the middle of God saying he's going to return his exiled people from their captivity um, in verses 10 to 12. So what Cyrus is doing, who, by the way, is not the one who took Israel captive, and and plundered them as a people and and put them to servitude as a people. This is 70 years after Mm. um, they had been conquered. In Mm. fact, it's not even the same uh, empire. So Mm. we've gone from Babylon to Persia. So arguably nobody in Cyrus's reign had anything to do with Israel being conquered and carried away into captivity two generations ago. Okay, mm. But God has promised that he's going to return his people. And in Ezra chapter 1, that's what we see happening. Now, it gets more interesting to me, Nick, because about 30 years later, about three uh, emperors later, uh, we come to Ezra chapter 6. And there, there's a dispute uh, about, uh, again, whether it's lawful that Israel is returning to Jerusalem to build the temple and so on. That dispute gets settled by Darius, uh, an, another, another emperor. Uh, and here's what Darius does in, in response to the—it's I mean, basically a, a court battle. Uh, and he goes back mm-hmm. to the records, uh, back to Cyrus's day. Uh, pulls out, interestingly, the secular history and records and says this is what was decreed. Um, and this is, this is what he says when he, when he makes his final ruling. He says, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail. So essentially what this emperor does, a hundred years after they were taken into captivity, when, by this point, there are no living Jews who are a part of the original conquering of, of Jerusalem and being led into captivity. So there are descendants, but not those who directly experienced the exile mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of the, the initial conquering. What he does is pass a tax. It taxes the, the, the region. That tax revenue is then given to Israel to fund their return to Jerusalem, uh, to fund the rebuilding of the temple, Uh, in full. So now, what I would say to folks who say um, this kind of restitution, this kind of reparations is an injustice and is unbiblical, I would say, okay, now we have a theological crisis because God is just all day long, Mm -hmm. does justice all day long. It's God who is sovereignly orchestrating this. And the very things that we're being told are um, evidences of injustice, the state taxing the citizenry, the citizenry having nothing mm-hmm. to do with the original offenses, the recipients not being, you know, the ones who were enslaved, so on and so forth. All those things are actually actively present in the text. That's what's going on in Ezra chapter 6. And mm-hmm. so I would say, no, this is not an injustice at all. It's justice delayed. Um, but mm-hmm. support for, re- for reparations of this sort seems to me to be quite legitimate from the scripture, from a scriptural standpoint
1: you mind if I ask a couple? So um, I think that's very good and a great rebuttal of people who would say reparations are injustice. One thing that helped me was understanding the idea of social sin. So uh, Isaiah 6.5, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. That opened my eyes up to, not only am I as an individual sinful, but we as a people... Are also sinful, and I mean this is this is obviously Isaiah's response to seeing a holy God. But I think uh, if you could expound on that a little bit, it might be helpful because one of the objections I see to reparations is very individualistic, and I, I think in general Americans tend to see themselves as individuals and not part of a people. But I don't think that's necessarily biblical.
2: Well, so so people will will get quite vexed about that yeah. that issue. Um, So I I would, before I sort of go to that, I I just want to go back to what we were saying earlier. I think it's important to recognize that the site of a conversation about reparations for slavery or reparations for Jim Crow period or reparations for housing segregation, the site of that is the state, not the individual. We have as Christians an understanding of the state that, that the head of the state is, in that sense, a federal head for all the citizenry. The, the analogy to that, of course, would be when we're all sinners, Adam is our head. When mm-hmm. we're saved mm-hmm. through faith in Christ, Christ becomes our head. We understand federal representation. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, on one level, the, the issue of whether or not I as an individual did it uh, is really not the conversation because our federal head um, established laws and practices and, mm. and committed and made p- permissible uh, the acts. But having said that, um, I do think there's a strong case to be made for what you just call social sin, or, or sins that are characteristic of, of generations. Um, you, you cited the Isaiah reference, um, you read through the prophets, you see this with the prophets all the time, they're denouncing the entire nation for its corruption. I do not understand them to mean that every single individual Israelite, Israelite was guilty of you know, um, those corruptions. For that to be the case, the prophets would have had to been guilty of it as well. So I, I, I think it would be best to understand that as characteristic. The accountability for group sins gets even sharper when we come to Matthew 23, for example. So in Matthew chapter 23, um, this long series of woes that Jesus is, is preaching against the scribes uh, and the Pharisees, At near the end of it, verse 34, 33, he says this, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come, notice, all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, mm-hmm. truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So Jesus reaches all the way back to Abel, <laughs> right, <laughs> in dealing with Israel, and says, mm-hmm. listen, all the blood of the prophets from Abel all the way down to this generation, it's going to come due on this generation. Um, so he clearly sees that present generation as in some way complicit with this sort of characteristic sin of rejecting the prophets, in this case, um, of, of Israel. They are not sufficiently different from their fathers. You see the same rhetorical device in um, in Deuteronomy. Throughout that book, as, as Moses is sort of giving the law again, he keeps speaking to that generation as if they committed the transgressions of all the generations that have gone yeah. before them uh, and calling them to repent. Um, and I think that's... I think that's necessary for us to lay hold of and to deal with, um, lest we just sort of announce ourselves free of all of the things that have gone before Mm -hmm. and declare ourselves innocent of it all, when in fact on closer inspection, we might find some things that we need to repent of. At the very least, we will find a responsibility that we need to address. Uh, In this case, again, we're talking about reparations. The, the, the last thing I would say on that is, I think that's an important exercise for the country because um, as, as Professor William Darity at Duke would put it, he would say reparations has three goals. Acknowledgement, uh, some form of restitution, but also closure, right? And so to get this right, would actually help with one of those nagging concerns that I know many people have. It's like, okay, this is not gonna be end of it. I'm gonna keep being bled dry, so on and so forth. No, actually, if, if, you, if you approach reparations well um, and you arrive at a meaningful uh, act of restitution uh, along with acknowledgement, then, then you sort of give yourself the best possible chance of closure on a very ugly part of, of American history. Without doing that i don 't know how you ever get closure, mm-hmm. you know, but that's going to require thinking as you just said in sort of cultural generational terms and being and being okay with that in order to sort of inspect and and then repent wherever that's necessary mm-hmm. you know?
0: um, I only have um sort of two thoughts to add to that one is it makes me think of um a book I read a couple of years ago. Uh, it's called Underground Airlines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's an alternate history, right? Alternate history is what if the Civil War had never been fought? Mm-hmm. And what if we just sort of kept on keeping on, mm-hmm. compromising and compromising? And so in the sort of modern, in the 2015 of that alternate history, there are still four slave states, mm-hmm. right? And um, the thing that I could not stop thinking about after I read that novel was just how much that continuing sin on the part of the state impacted everyone else everyone. in all the other 46 states how history changed in terms of sort of America's moral leadership in the world mm. or not or mm. lack thereof um, and how a societal sin is a real thing mm-hmm. right like and I think and I think that we we we, we do like to think of ourselves as kind of you know, dissociated individuals, sort of, it's kind of in our, in our heritage, and our, our, our blood to do it, but the Bible tells us not to do that, mm-hmm. um, and I think, um, so that's kind of one point. Uh, the, the other thing is, and this is a much more kind of pragmatic modern-day argument, if you are a non-black person, and particularly a white person living in America, you may not have done anything, um, but you are surely benefiting from the sort of system that oppressed a whole people group for generations, mm-hmm. um, and you um, like it or not, unfortunately, right? So one thing I like to think about is we need to actually separate the idea of culpability and blame mm-hmm. from the idea of responsibility right. to correct the problem. Because, for That's example, right. no one's talking about rounding up white Americans and putting them in jail right. to punish them for having done this. Right. What we're talking about is making restitution to those who were harmed. Right. Um, and those are very different things. That's the difference between guilt and just responsibility.
2: Right. Well, and, and, and sort of the – sometimes I think the evidence for um, what you're saying, Nick, and, and knowledge of what you're saying um, can be heard in the almost reflexive, you're taking our money, our wealth, mm. right? Uh, rather than even hearing we're making something right what you're hearing is, you're taking from me. Mm-hmm. And and the very reflexive you're taking from me is the evidence of the relative advantage and disadvantage that's been sort of inherited in the system. Yeah. Um, one of the things I found I found provocative, and I had opportunity to read it through and, and digest it, but in in the 1619 project, uh, mm-hmm. Fleming Rutledge wrote a, a reflection on it uh, and, and quoted a, a section from it, but the section basically argued we need to date the founding of the country at Mm 1619 because apart from the economy of slavery, the country's impossible, right? Mm -hmm. The wealth that it generates, the, the might that it acquires is on the back of centuries of free labor. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and so they're making, they're making a provocative, you know, sort of argument about, Mm -hmm. you know, how we define the the origin and the existence of the country uh, and how it, how it gets to be the United States, you know, whatever that means in terms of world leader and power and so on. Um, but it becomes the United States hmm. because it invests in this um, unequal, you know, systematic, um, systematically unequal uh, parsing of resources and riches and uh, rights and so on. And and that needs to be accounted for and it needs to be recognized that we, we're still... Inheriting that, uh, in some form today. Yeah,
0: and 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 I think if you're if you lived in that time and you weren't an enslaved African, um, it's I mean to put it starkly, like every second you spent not trying to tear that system down was a second spent in complicity. Yeah, and that's that's what yep. is meant by social sin. That's right. Um, you know, and and so I do think that that's yep. really really important.
2: Yeah. So so it's not enough to say I I did not commit the wrong. I think, uh, here's another place where the scripture speaks to us, um, the sort of positive fulfillment of the law mm-hmm. and loving your neighbor means that you, you should have been anti, not just neutral. Yeah, yeah. You're not That's Switzerland. Right. You actually have to be anti-oppressing. You have to be anti-racism, anti-whatever the case is, um, in order to be fulfilling your duty uh, before the Lord uh, in, in any measure. Mm-hmm.
0: I think there's something else interesting there. You talk about the objection of they're taking from me. Here's the thing. No one's talking about kind of arbitrary expropriation. Mm-hmm. We're talking about duly levied taxes yep. passed by constitutional means through right. Congress or whomever. That's right. Um, which is society collectively deciding to make restitution. That's right. Um, which is, by the way, why arguments that taxation is theft in general are, in my, in my opinion, a uh, bunk for our libertarian listeners. Um, <laughs> no, but but true. but and, and, and like because because you, actually i you know what arbitrary expropriation looks like go to go to zimbabwe you'll see yeah. right what it looks like where the black majority takes power they're um um perhaps in some ways understandably a little less kind mm-hmm. than their neighbors in south africa and they just start taking land from white farmers mm-hmm. um and it's it's sort of an undemocratically done um we're not talking about that right right, right. um it, it, the other thing I would say is there's another objection, though, which we've touched on a little, which is this protestation of American innocence, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's come up in a lot of the responses to the 1619 Project. Why are we dwelling on this? And by the way, I mm-hmm. actually think that's, that maybe you tell me the most likely Christian objection is in a, I think it's a false objection, but in a, in a culture of grace, shouldn't we have moved on <laughs> yeah. Yeah. from that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, do you have thoughts on that I if well, so you've I, seen it I, in the Twitter I do, sphere. <laughs> I do think you hear versions of that, yeah. right?
2: Which which is interesting to me because it it's it, it is it seems to me um, a a kind of effort to sidestep something else that's very Christian, which is repentance, which is acknowledgement, mm-hmm. which right. is confession, right. you know. And so Bonhoeffer just to cite one person would, would really label that cheap grace. Mm. Right. Right. That's not the costly grace of the cross. Uh, and it is because Christ has died for us and mm-hmm. risen again and there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that is precisely what should enable us to look squarely at these things mm-hmm. and admit the ugly yeah. we, we, we know there is a relief we know there is forgiveness um, we know there is grace but it's not of the cheap sort that, that you know, allows us to close our eyes to sin and, and to kind of wink at it but really to, to full-on acknowledge it for what it is.
0: And this is why opponents of, um, uh, of, of reparations, to go back to Darity's framework, n- don't merely want to withhold restitution. Mm-hmm. They want to withhold acknowledgement, acknowledgement. Yeah. and they want to withhold closure.
2: And that's where I think the fight is. I, this is why I said the shit question is we can't mm-hmm. take for granted, because I think y- even the acknowledgement bit, you, you find resistance. on.
0: And you are then forced into arguments like... Slavery wasn't all that bad. That's right. You start to make common cause with people who want to say those things. Mm-hmm. I think
2: not all that bad. Long ago. Oh, by the way, African chieftains sold Africans into slavery. Um, so this kind of you know effort to you know equate um, guilt as a way of downing downing da- dialing down guilt. I mean, all kinds of evasions.
1: Well, I think this is where the delay in repentance reparations restitution is is really harmful in the sense of it the, like the the wound remains open and is going to fester and y- you know the more there is no restitution the more that's going to continue to rot i think the other thing i would say is for me I I drew a pretty straight line between, okay, there is biblically such a thing as social sin. There is biblically such a thing as historical social sin. There is also clearly a a principle of restitution all over the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems to me to be very Christian to say, okay, there was a wrong done here. To what degree I am personally responsible or not, what an opportunity to demonstrate a desire mm. to love my neighbor and make restitution for for wrong done. I think that that is is that not what Jesus did for us and yet he was innocent. Mm. And so if we want to emulate mm. our savior making right something that has gone horribly wrong, this is one way to do it. I think the only place I might not necessarily disagree, but see things differently, is the, the location of reparations coming from the government. I, I agree. The government was responsible. It makes sense that the government should make restitution. I think the reason I hesitate is because I think it is so unlikely and I also time-consuming. So there's part of me that thinks there are things that private institutions can do now without government say so to start the healing process recently georgetown decided with the student body vote they all opted in and so they wanted to do this to create a fund for the descendants of slaves who helped create that institution i love that i think to the degree to which this can be christians and the country opting in to repentance the better it will be um Mm -hmm. i I think we can own it as a positive good instead of a, oh, don't, don't take my stuff, which, oh, by the way, that response is telling about what you value if you're like, don't take my money. That, that's another, that's <laughs> another podcast. So I, I think of institutions, you know, the Southern Seminary did a great report on the influence of racism and slavery at that institution. They could take it a step further and consider developing scholarships for the descendants of the people that they can find, that are descendants of the slaves that helped create that institution, that is something that they could do.
0: In case some of our friends are listening, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, right. Uh, so, and I'm not. I don't mean to. I don't mean to besmirch Southern Seminary uh, at all. I think the report was a wonderful step and is an important part of acknowledgement. But there's more. There's more that they could positively do.
2: No, that was that was a wonderful act of leadership. Uh, And a report is the culmination of leadership over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So you don't get reports like that unless you've been thinking about working on those kinds of issues, Mm -hmm. you know, as an ordinary part of life uh, for some time. Uh, But I I agree with you. I think reports are wonderful. It's part of an Mm acknowledgement. But unless married to restitution, they become merely symbolic and frustrating. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting to me. I remember reparations discussions in, in the 80s when I'm in college, 90s when I'm in college. Um, speakers come through for Black History Month you know if you didn't have a line in there about reparations then you know, <laughs> you weren't a good speaker kind of thing <laughs> uh, that, was just, that was just red meat right um, but nobody thought it would happen yeah. right um, and here we are fast forward I won't tell you how many years well I guess I did late 80's <laughs> 90's yeah. here we, here we, we are 30 30 years <laughs> later uh, and candidates for the Democratic nomination are talking about it. Uh, colonists like David Brooks mm-hmm. are saying, you know what, as mm-hmm. I reflect on this, we, should, <laughs> we actually should do this. Mm-hmm. Um, there is way more sort of traction on the issue than was imaginable 30 years ago. And I imagine that that's a little bit like 1830, wondering about freedom mm-hmm. at, at the sort of zenith mm-hmm. of the institution of slavery. Not really seeing clearly 1865 right Mm -hmm. uh and so the other thing that the scripture teaches us about this and every other act of justice is we must be walking by faith not by sight right um and so that's a lesson for us we 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 may not see everything in our generation or or see what's literally around the curve uh, in god's providence but we should be walking by faith uh and 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 not by sight on, on your point, Ben, about uh, the individual institutions, private institutions, a- amen, wholeheartedly. There's nothing that f- prevents a Wells Fargo or whomever from acknowledging its history and 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 making restitution. I, I think it'll be insufficient, though, um, because again, most slaves, for example, weren't weren't held by large corporations hmm. uh, or or large plantations, you know, but but in households, domestically, and so on. Um, and and so it's kind of like you have a system that affects an entire category of people even freedmen or, or or free people you know during during the days of slavery you know it's like how do you how do you how do you address that yeah. uh and i don't think you quite get there solely by uh private yeah Well, and there, were, there was a,
0: literally an executive agency that was set up mm-hmm. yeah at, you know, for the purpose of catching escaped slaves Which wherever one? they might yeah. escape and to.
1: I, I don't mean to suggest. I think I I would argue that we should fight against a public policy governmental solution. Mm-hmm. I would let me rephrase or reframe it to say I would challenge, particularly Christian institutions, yeah. to be leaders yeah, on this. Move. Like move. why like move. why not be a step ahead of of where the government's going to be? Because we all know. Yeah. That's going to take a, a long time to figure out all the details. Um, yeah. So we could be, we could, we could love in a way that is very tangible. Well, here's
2: another place where I think, prophetically speaking, we should be speaking to the conscience and uh, the moral character of the country. Uh, I love a talk that uh, Brother Duke Quan did, a PCA pastor here in D.C., uh, on church reparations, thinking about the church's role mm-hmm. uh, in this area that would be worth Googling and watching. In that way, so I I absolutely agree with you there, Ben. I
0: think it's a both and, sure, right. And I'd love to see every every private institution that has some history in this country think about what it looks like to reckon with its own history. Mm -hmm. Let me ask um two questions as we kind of draw toward the end of the hour. One would be anything we should guard against or be careful of as we pursue a conversation like this. Um, you know, is there a way in which a focus on this can go overboard in one way or another?
2: It's a good question. You're getting the pregnant silence on the <laughs> <laughs> on, on the podcast. It's a good question. Uh, I, I think there are there are folks who fear, yeah, um, the idea again that this this will never end. We'll just be bled dry. Um, I, that's a fear. I don't I don't know what overboard looks like. Part of why I don't know what overboard looks like is because if we were computing um, what we were estimating what would be owed in the way of reparations for mm. um wages not paid so on and so forth uh, we're in the trillions of dollars we're, we're talking 10 mm-hmm. to 14 trillion dollars um so you know again whether or not anybody comes anywhere close to sort of putting forth that kind of program um if you did you know it, it, it that'd be the whole shooting match it'd be hard <laughs> to imagine how you go overboard if if you were approaching that kind of um that kind of um, mm. recompense, but uh, sitting here, I, I can't. I don't know what that would. Be. I don't know what overreach would be.
1: I guess. I guess a caution you could offer is if the motivation behind advocates or, or policy wonks who are at are fighting for this position becomes vengeance
2: mm. and not mm. um, that's restitution. Yeah, that's good. Right. Yeah. yeah that's that, good.
1: That would be sin. Yeah. Um,
2: that's good. Uh, again, it's not. It's not something I fear yeah. because yeah. B- because one of the geniuses of african-american participation um for their own rights uh, in the country has been the sort of astute avoidance of vengeance as a motive uh that, that's rather remarkable yeah. uh in the history of the country uh and particularly where those efforts have been led by um, african-american churches mm-hmm. um so I, I i hear you on that i think that's a, a good warning um but again just looking at the history i, I marvel at god's grace uh, in in how how little vengeance is played yeah. as a motive.
1: Yeah, I mean, in we instance. talked about Zimbabwe and South Africa. I mean, th- there's South Africa. There's tons of issues, tons of problems. However, mm-hmm. the Truth and Reconciliation Commission went a long way right. to kind of de mitigating or defanging the mm-hmm. potential venom vengeance that could have could have happened there. It could have mm-hmm. been. Far worse yeah. uh, given how awful apartheid was. Well,
0: and it was two out of three parts of that framework. Mm-hmm. Acknowledgement and closure. Yes yeah. exactly. It right. meant confession. It yeah. yeah, meant exactly right. truth yeah, before yeah. reconciliation. That's
2: right. Yeah. Um, Which is the only way you can have reconciliation. That's right. Right. Yeah. Uh and, and you know, you got some very transformative leadership there yeah. in South Africa with between Tutu um and um Mandela. Um without that kind of transformative leadership. Um, it doesn't you know, happen. That's right. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: So, um, and the only thing I'd add to that is just to say, I can imagine the caricatures painted by the opponents as becoming more possible if you were to step deeper into doing something. Hmm. And if you even find yourself at risk of that, like, amen, it's actually a sign Hmm. of progress. If we're back on this podcast saying, whoa, 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 hold on a second. We got to watch out for this. We got to watch out for that. We are so far from that because we're not even willing to consider the bill that would allow us to have the conversation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and related, the one, the one point I'd make, too, is, is I do think people get hung up on... The, slavery was so long ago, but you know what wasn't so long ago? Hanging African-American men by the hundreds and thousands in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Constantly. Mm-hmm. Blaming an African-American man for whistling at a white woman and then taking them in your truck, beating them in the woods, killing them. Dismembering, disfiguring their body. Like not even in death did they escape the racial hatred of this country? Mm. So there is a reality in which reparations are not just for slavery. I mean, all the way up through today, there is still racial injustice. Um, Mm -hmm. It was not that long ago that Jim Crow was the law of the Mm land. So uh, let's not think it's just, oh, this ended in 1865. No, it's it's with us today, and I think we all – somewhere intuitively know that and perhaps that explains the violent reaction to these sorts of conversations yeah
0: Mm. and reconciliation well truth right lifts a weight off our shoulders confession Mm -hmm. does that yeah last question for us all then which is what's the sort of it's, it's a question i always end with right what's the christian to do what sort of should our duty be as christians or as christian leaders what should we be doing um to glorify God in the midst of a debate over an issue like this?
2: Well, I think we have to be, um, we maybe have to ask ourselves some questions in terms of what's most dominant in our motivations when we come to a conversation like this. Is it an idealized picture of our country that we're protecting? Mm -hmm. Is it uh, a sense of our own personal innocence we're protecting? I've had a lot of correspondence from people who say, I, I know that slavery is bad or I know that racism is bad and who kind of quietly admit, you know, mom and dad were racist or granddads were racist, but, but they loved our family and I, I just couldn't disparage mm-hmm. them, I couldn't implicate them in, in something like this. So is that what we're kind of protecting or, mm-hmm. you know, are we really sufficiently guided by uh, a, a love for God's glory, a love for his name? Uh, a love, therefore, for justice, right, uh, biblically worked out and defined. So I, th- I think we got to do some, some work on our motives. Uh, and on the other side, are we sufficiently guarded against the mm-hmm. things we've been talking about in terms of vengeance and things of that sort? So the first step, I think, is to get before the Lord. Um, work on your motives. What am I really guided by here? Can I detect fear rather than faith? Mm. Can I detect anger that's not righteous? What's happening here? Am I am I being a partisan rather than a Christian? That's the first thing. Uh, second thing, I think is always you know get educated, right? So there there are lots of folks who have strong opinions about this, who who really don't know the literature, don't know the history you recited, uh, and um,
0: sixteen nineteen project's a good place to 16, start. It's
2: a great place to start, um, but there's a lot out there, um, and so I would say get get educated, really really get up to speed on. what's being proposed or not proposed. Uh, For example, in a a, a podcast like this one, we've talked about the issue at a principial level. We've not talked about any actual program for reparations, right, which would be the third sort of step, right, is to begin to think about uh, programs for reparation. And there we could have many different approaches. We could think differently about those approaches, advocate for different things, and so figure out what what you think would be... um, the right way to right this wrong and and then actually advocate for it. Hmm. Ben? I
1: don't know. I guess this isn't fully flushed out. I I, I guess I would encourage people to consider that confession begets confession. Hmm. And so if we as a Christian people, as a country uh, confronted the effects of both slavery and the effects of slavery and, and, you know, started with truth and move towards reconciliation. Consider that that may create an openness to see, having eyes to see other ways in which mm-hmm. we as a people are doing some horrible things. Whatever that may be, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, you can think of uh, several things that um, th- you know we ha- have responsibility for as a people. And so, if we continue to deny, 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 um, we are really closing off the chances of some sort of, I don't know, revival, if you want to put it that way, Um, Mm. uh, reckoning with other social sins that are near and dear to to people's hearts.
2: Amen.
0: Only thing I'd say, and maybe this is a little provocative, is... If you think about if you ask the question what are evangelicals in America obsessed with uh, the first answer you'll probably give is the pro-life movement mm. and uh, that's a good thing what would it look like if the answer to that question were also reparations mm. yeah mm. it would be countercultural like I don't think it's enough for us to just hold the right position on this issue I'd love for us to be obsessed with it mm. as a matter of what it means for the character of this country to be a different character. Mm. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about America reflecting God's character. This would be um, an ultimate expression of that.
1: Yeah, there is a there is a thought experiment I've had for a long time, which is far afield of this. But in the '80s, when the AIDS crisis hit the gay community particularly hard, I have thought repeatedly, what would, how would things have been different if the church said, "Drop everything, let's." go where these people are love them care for them provide for them you know f- above and beyond what mm-hmm. anyone could possibly expect what if the response had been we are going to love the down and out and the disenfranchised um, who are suffering instead of a political knife fight that yeah. has come back on us right
2: you yep. mean love your neighbor yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that might be something <laughs> Christ uh, would do revolutionary idea it's an important idea but uh, you know, I'd say that tongue in cheek, but um, it is what it comes back down to, isn't it? It's, it's love your neighbor. What, what if Jesus meant your actual neighbor? Yeah. You know, and uh, and what if we actually did that? Uh, on so many things, um, life would be radically different. Communities would be radically different. The witness of the church would be radically different. Thank you for listening to Prophetic Politics. This is the BD Anya I want to make you aware of something special that's happening and invite you to come. March 5 through 7, 2020, Just Gospel 2020 will be having a national conference in Alexandria, Virginia. That's March 5 to 7, 2020, in Alexandria, Virginia, at Delray Baptist Church. Our theme this year is pilgrim politics. So if you've been interested to listen to prophetic politics, And you've been encouraged by what you've heard in turn, in in tone, in substance, come to Just Gospel 2020. We're going to be thinking about what it means to be Christians, particularly what it means to be pilgrims who are passing through this world, who have a prophetic political concern for the things that are happening to our neighbors, the things that are happening to our country, uh, and who are trying to think how to bear faithful witness um, in, in in our local situations, in our national situations, and so on. So if you want more of this, more of this conversation, if you feel like this is an area of discipleship where you want to grow, need to grow, uh, as I do, March 5 to 7, 2020, Just Gospel 2020, Pilgrim Politics, Healing Conversations About Christians and Politics in Alexandria, Virginia, come to our website, justgospelconference.org justgospelconference.org and find more information. We'd love to have you there. Hey, we might even tape an episode of Prophetic Politics and you can join us. God bless you.